0: This passage is a trigger text. The Pedobaptist reads it and can only think of infant baptism and go straight there. The Credobaptist sees this text and can only think of baptism and goes straight to refute infant baptism and to affirm believers' baptism. The problem with this approach is that we drown out God's voice in the text by our own presuppositions. We will not come to the text, understand it, and then conclude with a doctrine. But from the beginning, we already have the conclusion. We already have the doctrine and the text can't say anything except to agree with our doctrine. And so we are all liable to dishonor God, quench and grieve the Holy Spirit. This means we need four basic principles as we approach Mark 10:13 to 16. First of all, we need to be aware of our own presuppositions. And we need to take off the eyeglasses of polemics. Two, we need to come to this passage in a humble spirit. Lord, teach me. And whatever you do, teach me. I will fully submit. No arguing against you. Two, we need to interpret this passage with the exact same principles, we interpret every passage of Scripture. As we have come to mark, chapter after chapter after chapter, we need the same principles of interpretation. Vocabulary, grammar, syntax, context, Scripture interpreting Scripture. And fourthly, We must conclude with doctrine only after sound, sober exposition. So let us seek to apply these principles as we ask three questions of this passage. One, what is this passage teaching? Two, what are the implications... Of this passage. Three, how does this passage apply to disciples? So, first of all, what is this passage teaching? My method here is really how you should never preach a sermon. I'm not going to exposit the text, I'm going to exegete the text and for our young student you should never do exegetical preaching only expositional preaching but at least for this section i'm going to be doing exegetical preaching because it's such a controversial subject we must slow down and dig deep into the very uh, the trees and not the wood itself and only after exegeting the passage will we have a doctrine of what is Jesus Christ teaching in this passage? So you remember the context. Jesus Christ is in the region of Perea. Just beyond Judea to the east side of the Jordan. He's in a house. And he's teaching his disciples about remarriage. Then verse 13 tells us what happens next. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. Who is the they? Now, you read the passage, there are no details. But when you look at the context and the language, all commentators are agreed. They are speaking of Jews. We're in the region of Perea. We're beyond the Jordan. Jewish leaders are there in the midst of all the people, the Pharisees. So here are Jews, people who are members of the covenant of God. Secondly, they here is masculine. It is referring to fathers. Jewish fathers are bringing their children to Jesus. Thirdly, they have some kind of faith in Jesus. Historical faith, um, saving faith. But they have a faith here. Why? Because to whom are they going to for the blessing of God? They believe Jesus is the source of divine blessing. They believe Jesus Christ can bless their children. So here we have Jewish fathers looking to Jesus to bless their little children. Now, what exactly does it mean, little children? Well, the Greek is paideon. Uh, uh, this is where we get the English words, paediatrician, a children's doctor, or paedobaptist. There it is, the paido, the pedo there. Now, this primarily refers to young children. For example, in Hebrews chapter 11, 23, Moses is less than three months old and it uses this word. Moses, when he was born, was had three months of his present parents and it's described him as a proper child. Pedo there. In Matthew chapter 2 verse 8, it is speaking of Jesus Christ, who has just been born. And in this verse, to take the, the loosest view, he is up to two years old. Because Herod is looking for two years in hunger to kill. And he uses the same word. It says, go and search diligently for the young child. So, taking the loosest view possible there, up to two years old. But then in Matthew 18, 2, Jesus Christ calls a child, and the child is able to walk and approach Jesus Christ. And so this word, Pideon, where we get pediatrician pedal pedo-baptism, speaks to a young child primarily. But, it can be used for any child up to 10, 11, 12 years old. It has to be noted down. But Luke is very helpful here. Just like when we go to every text in Mark, if Matthew or Luke enlighten, we go to them to enlighten us. And how does Luke describe the children who are coming to Jesus here? Luke 18 verse 15 it uses the word brephos. That means either a child in the womb or a newborn child just out of the womb. An infant, let's say. And when you look at this word in the New Testament, again it's clear. Luke chapter 1 verse 41, speaking of John the Baptist in the womb he is brephos and when elizabeth heard the salutation of mary the brephos the babe the infant leaped in her womb chapter 2 verse 12 of luke speaking of jesus christ as a new born infant ye shall find the babe the brephos the infant wrapped in swaddling clothes Lying in a manger, and when this word is used metaphorically, it still retains its newborn infancy. First Peter chapter two verse two: As newborn babes, as breathos, as infants, desire the sincere milk of the word. And so, what children? What kind of little children have been brought to Jesus? Newborn babes, infants, little children are being brought by their Jewish fathers so that Jesus Christ would bless them. And the word here in Mark chapter 10 verse 13 is that they brought young children to him that he should touch them. It is simply a shorthand of saying that Jesus would bless them. That's confirmed in verse 6, where it says he brought them up in his arms, in his hands, and he blessed them. In Matthew chapter um, 19, verse 13, the parallel account says that he should put his hands on them and pray. And so Jewish fathers in the covenant are bringing their infants To Jesus Christ, so that he would bless the infants. Now, what does it mean to bless? Just generically speaking, the word bless means to bestow grace, favor, gifts, benefits upon someone else. Just the word generically. What kind of blessing are the Jewish fathers seeking for their infants? They're seeking Divine blessing. Matthew 19, 13, they want Jesus to take hold of their children and pray implicitly to the Father to bless them. So it's divine blessing. Second of all, it's kingdom blessing. Verse 14, for such is the kingdom of God. Then he brings them up and he blesses them. So it's kingdom blessing. And thirdly, it is Christ's blessing because they're looking to Jesus Christ to bless them. It is Jesus Christ who takes them up, and he is the one that blesses. Now, what are these blessings that come from God, the kingdom, and Jesus Christ? And again, consistency. What do you do here? You go to the Bible. You look at divine kingdom Christ blessing And then you understand the passage. It's like any sort of context. And you know that divine blessing by God is summarized in Numbers chapter 6. Where it says from verse 24, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee and give thee peace and they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. So divine blessing is God's favor, that he'll keep and protect you, that he will be so delighted and so uh, uh, full of pleasure in you that his presence is with you. He would be gracious to you, undeserved saving blessing to you. That there will be peace, shalom, between God and man and reconciliation. And that God's name will be upon you. Ownership, master. So that's divine blessing. What about kingdom blessing? Well, again, you can go to the New Testament and find many kingdom blessings. For example, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. What are the kingdom blessings? Blessed, blessed, blessed. And the blessings are, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They receive and inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed shall be comforted, that is comforted by God God in the forgiveness of sins. Blessing is to be filled in righteousness. Blessing is to be obtaining mercy of God. Blessing is to be called children of God. Well, let's go to Paul. Paul Describe kingdom blessing for me. Romans fourteen seventeen. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. But what about Christ's blessing? How does Christ bless? Where do you start? <laughs> Ephesians 1, 3. Every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. It's redemption. It's righteousness. It's sanctification. It's adoption. It's it's the power of God within you, and so on and so forth. Paul, define blessing for me, okay? Romans four six to eight. Blessed are they whose sins are forgiven. Galatians chapter three. Galatians chapter four. The blessing. Of Abraham would come to you, justification by faith alone, and the Holy Spirit given to you. And so, consistently understanding the Bible, Jewish fathers who are in the covenant are bringing their infants to Jesus Christ to receive divine blessing, kingdom blessing, And Christ's blessing. How do the disciples respond? Second part of verse 13. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. Rebuke means to strongly admonish for wrongdoing. You're wrong. You're wrong, fathers, for bringing your infants seeking Jesus Christ to bless them with divine kingdom Christ blessing. Now, why did they think it was wrong? It doesn't say, does it explicitly, at least? Could it be they did not believe infants qualify for this blessing? Or could it not be that? Could it simply be, Jesus is too busy, Jesus is too important for you fathers to come with your little infants and come into the... We're busy having a teaching session on remarriage right now. It's not the time and place. You're wrong for coming now. We don't know exactly. I would argue it was the former though. Because in verse 15 there's a rebuke and an instruction. Because remember chapter 9, they still have pride. That man casting out demons, he's not one of us, go away, forbid. Little infants, fathers seeking that Jesus Christ blesses them, I think they're forbidding him because they don't believe the children qualify. Doesn't matter which way you take it. The purpose is this, the disciples think the fathers are wrong for bringing infants to to be blessed of Christ and so they rebuke and admonish them. How does Jesus Christ respond? Verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased. That's a weak translation. The word, therefore, displeased means to be deeply indignant. It's not even angry. Deeply indignant. In Christ's life, when he saw something that was wrong, when he saw injustice, he became very angry. For example, in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, there's a man with a withered hand. There's a man who suffers in society, in his station, and so on. Is it right to heal a man on the Sabbath? And then the Pharisees, and all their laws, and all their lack of compassion, and it says, And when he had looked around about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Well, this word here is stronger than that. So Christ is more angry with his disciples than he was with the Pharisees in that incident. As fathers come with their infants, seeking the blessing of Christ and the disciples rebuke them, Jesus Christ responds with indignation. Why? Why is Christ so angry? We don't have to speculate. It's crystal clear. When he saw it, he was indignant, and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for because of such is the kingdom of God. Let's just look at some of these words. Suffer, it means to let go, to permit, allow. Forbid means to stop or hinder. Do not hinder them. Do not stop them. Allow them. Permit them, lust them to come unto me. Because such is the kingdom of God. Now, again, let's be careful here. What does it mean for such is the kingdom of God? I tried to be fair and listen to sermons and read books on this by our Baptist brothers. They asserted and proved nothing every time. They said the word such means comparison, like. And this is only teaching that people who are like infants, people who are like little children, belong to the kingdom of God. And therefore we must have a weak, humble, dependent spirit on Christ to enter the kingdom of God. And of course, they look at verse 15. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And say, see, it is only comparison. It's only like. But that's wrong. And I'm not just saying that because of my position. That's wrong contextually and that's wrong grammatically. Contextually, it is wrong because verse 16 is here. If verse 16 was not here, they'd have a point contextually. Here's infants being brought to Jesus. Jesus says, I am angry, do not forbid them, let them come to me, for such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, if you do not enter the kingdom just like this infant, then you're not entering the kingdom of God. Full stop. They would have a point, contextually, but that's not what happened. What happens in verse 16? He takes the infants and he blesses them. If it's merely an illustration for child likeness in the kingdom of God, which we agree with, then why take up the infants and bless them with kingdom blessing? Makes zero sense whatsoever. So contextually it's wrong. But secondarily, the very words in the grammar refute that. The word such is not a word of comparison. It's not a word for like. It's not a verb. It's a pronoun. Now I could assume what everyone knows, means by a pronoun here because everyone went to school. So here a pronoun is being used as the substitute for another noun. So in English, we don't like to say this. In the Greek, they don't like to say it. So imagine it says, Suffer the little children to come to me, for little children is the kingdom of God. We don't do that in English, do we? We'd use a pronoun, he, she, it. This is a pronoun. Suffer the little children to come unto me for such. is a pronoun referring to the little children in the kingdom of God. But it's a particular pronoun looking at the quality, the sphere of the thing it's referring to. So for example... Imagine I was to open a zoo, and it's a reptile zoo, and in this zoo are only reptiles. There's going to be alligators, crocodiles, komodo dragons, iguanas, such belong to the zoo. What's the such there for? One, it's a pronoun, but it's referring exactly to the preceding nouns and the kind that are coming in. If Jesus Christ or Mark wanted to use a word for comparison, he could have done, and he did it often. For example, do you know when you read Matthew and Mark, it often says the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is likened. That likened there is a verb or an adverb, a word of comparison. And the Holy Spirit wrote this. And he could have easily easily said, suffer the little children to come unto me, forbid them not, for such adverb, like, is the kingdom of God. And that's how it happens elsewhere. In Mark chapter 4 verse 30, for example, it says, whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is like. You go to Matthew 13, you go to Matthew 25, again and again and again. The adverb of comparison, like, comparison. This word is not used here whatsoever. So you cannot say it is a word of comparison, childlikeness. There is no word in the text. It's a pronoun referring to little children. So you can state it, and you can say what you want. But what did the God, Holy Spirit inspired words say? It's a pronoun. And it's also in a particular way, it's a possessive genitive. Means belonging to, membership of, part of. The little children, pronoun these, belong to. To the kingdom of God. Part of the kingdom of God. Are in the kingdom of God. It's possessive genitive. The Holy Spirit could use many, many words in grammar to make that not so clear. But God the Holy Spirit says, little children belong to the kingdom of God. You could not be more clear. You really could not. But what kingdom of God? If we have simplistic interpretations of the Bible, we're going to go completely wrong here. If you have a word and you understand the meaning of the word and you interpret every word like that, you're going to get big problems in the Bible. One of the examples I always use is the word flesh. You read your New Testament, what does the word flesh mean? And you'll say it means sinful nature. Romans 8, the flesh is enmity against God. The flesh versus the spirit. Okay, the vast majority of you says that. But if you think flesh, you're in problem. John 1.14, the word became flesh. Now you're in deep trouble. So when you come to the Bible, a word may have a meaning or many meanings. And the meaning is only determined by its context. So if you come to the kingdom of God and you only think regeneration, election, salvation, justified, predestination, and beyond, and that's it, you're in a lot of trouble. Because that means infants, for being infants, are all saved and going to heaven. That's absolutely not the case. You see, when you read your Bible fairly, you understand there's different ways of understanding the kingdom of God. And I'm only limited to two ways right now. the, The kingdom of God is either invisible or visible. When the kingdom God is invisible, it is for the elect only who are regenerate. John 3, 3 and 5. Except you be born again, born above, born from the Holy Spirit, you cannot enter or see the kingdom of God. But if you read Matthew 13, there's a problem. The unregenerate are in the kingdom of God. Because in Matthew 13, we have the parable of the wheat and the tares. The kingdom of God is like, comparison, wheat and tares. And then in the final verse, it says, Matthew 13, 30, let both wheat and tares grow together until the harvest, judgment day. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather ye together, fuss the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them hell and gather the wheat into my barn heaven. Or go to Matthew 25. The kingdom of God is like unregenerate and regenerate, wise and foolish virgins, wicked, slothful servants, faithful, zealous servants. Or the kingdom of God is like sheep and goats. And if you have only a narrow view, you're in lots of problems. But when you have a biblical view, you come to this text, okay, kingdom of God, are we talking about the invisible kingdom here or the external kingdom of here? And I put it to you as speaking of the visible, external kingdom of God. Because children and infants are being brought into the kingdom of God, not that they are all regenerate and saved and justified and elect and so on and so forth, but they belong as members to the kingdom of God visible. When God blessed Israel in Numbers chapter 6, were they all regenerate? I think we all know the answer. No. They were not. And so, here it is teaching and is confirming this in verse 16. Jesus takes up the infant's And he blesses them. Divine blessing, kingdom blessing, Christ's blessing. He blesses the children. Does that mean they're automatically regenerated? No, it does not. Because blessing means a promise. You read Romans 4. Blessing, blessing, blessing. Forgiveness of sins. There's a promise to it. There's a sign of it but it's only ever received by faith. Just like in number six, the Lord bless thee and keep thee, the Lord make his face to shine upon thee, and so on. Did they all receive the blessing as a promise? Yes. The actual benefit? No, unless they had faith. And so putting this sound, sober, Consistent, principled exposition together, what's the conclusion of Jesus? teaching little children and infants of parents who are in the covenant and seeking Christ by faith, belong and are members of the kingdom of God visible and they are to be confirmed in the blessing of Christ anyone, even Christ's own disciples, who forbids, hinders, and stops these infants from being members of the kingdom of God, he is indignant about it. That's what it's teaching. And since this is the sound, sober, consistent, exegetical, grammatical understanding of the text, what are the logical and necessary biblical implications arising. And there are three implications. Implications for the church, implications for the parent, and implications for the child. These are not the only ones. These are just how I can summarize within the sermon. So first of all, implications for the church. Little children belong to the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is simply a synonym of the church. In the New Testament, there are different words to describe the people of God. Sometimes it's a family, Ephesians 3, the family who were named after the father. Sometimes we're described as a body, 1 Corinthians 12, we're a body. Sometimes we're called the church, just reading the Paul's letters for that to prove that. And sometimes we are the kingdom of God. Of God. Romans 14, 17, he's writing to the church which is at Rome, and he says, We're all in the kingdom of God. And if you read the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 25, and the London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 26, what word do they use as a synonym for church? Kingdom. No controversy whatsoever there. And so just as Jesus is teaching little children are members of the kingdom of God visible, the implication is that children are members of the church visible. It's the same thing. And therefore the church is duty bound before Jesus Christ to recognize and treat them as such, or else he's indignant. That's why he's so angry at the disciples How dare you stop them coming to be blessed of me? You should never stop the infants because they're members of the kingdom of God. And so we as a church must recognize and treat infants born of covenant parents, believing parents, as members of the visible church. And is that not what Paul does himself in his epistles? In Ephesians, who's he writing to? The church, which is in Ephesus. And who does he include in chapter 6? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Children, you're not in the church, but wait till you're converted, and then you're in the church, and then you obey your parents in the Lord. It doesn't say that, does it? He's writing to the church at Ephesus. And he includes within his instruction to the members of the church. Some are parents, some are slaves, and some are children. He's recognizing them as members of the kingdom of God and members of the church of Ephesus. And that's what we need to do. How do you recognize and treat the children in this chapel or in the room? Are they annoying? Do they irritate you sometimes? You just wish they'd go out and get in another room and just adults alone. I hope none of us have that, and I'm just speaking theoretically. Because treating them like that is treating them as if they're not members of the kingdom of God. And these children have every right, as much as you and me, to be in the house of God in public worship. That's where we want little children to stay in the chapel and stay in the worship services. We understand practical difficulties. And maybe for some of their younger years, they go to a nursery or to a cry room or somewhere else. We understand that. But generally speaking, children are to come and be in the full worship service because they're members, as well as they should be worshipping their God. And as members, they should be having oversight from the elders. As members, they are liable to church discipline. As members, they are to be instructed in the things of God. Our Sabbath school teachers, they are recognizing and treating the children as members because they're coming and instructing them in the things of God after service. And so let us all recognize and treat the children As members of the kingdom of God. Or Christ will be indignant with you. Secondly, the church also is to preach the gospel to them. Because not everyone in the kingdom of God is saved. Wise and foolish virgins, sheep and goats, wheats and tares. And in Mark chapter 1 verse 15, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel. And so we as a church have a duty to preach to everyone, because I don't know your heart just like you don't know mine, and preach repentance and faith in Christ. But they're members of the church. How do you know someone's a member of a church? How do you know if I'm a member of Planet Fitness? How do you know if I'm a member of Costco or not? You can have a little sign, a little card. And what's the sign of being a member of the kingdom of God? It's The covenant sign, of course. In the Old Testament, it was circumcision. In the New Testament, baptism. And when you read the new covenant promises, it always includes children. <coughs> shouldn't say always, that's not right. Most often, Quotes children. Let me give you three examples. Isaiah 44.3, new covenant without pouring the Spirit. I will pour my Spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Offspring? Isaiah 59.21, where it says, The Redeemer shall come to Zion, Jesus Christ. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed. Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-five, And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David, Messiah, Jesus Christ, shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. Spurgeon says in his famous sermon, there's no water in this passage, and therefore no baptism. He's 100% correct. There is no water here. No one's arguing there's water here. There's no fonts here. It's not what we're arguing. What does it teach? Children are members of the kingdom of God. What does that mean? Baptism. Because baptism is the sign and seal of being a member of the kingdom of God. Infants are to be blessed with divine kingdom Christ blessing. What does that mean? Promise, just like it was in the Old Testament, as in the New. And therefore, the necessary implication because children are members of the kingdom of God, they have a right before Jesus Christ to the sign of being members of the kingdom of God baptism. This promise is for you and your children. Lydia and her household was baptised. And so therefore we must baptise or Christ will be indignant. Remember what happened when Moses didn't circumcise his children in Exodus 4. He said God was going to kill him. Jesus is indignant when we don't baptise our children. Because they're members of the kingdom of God and they have a right to it. Second implications for Parents. So many implications. What's the status of your child? Heathen? Pagan? Same status as a Hindu or a Jew or a Muslim? No. Your child's not of that status. Your child's a member of the kingdom of God. See, there are. You're either a member of the kingdom of God or you're not. You're just like the Muslims, you're just like the Jews, you're just like everyone else. No. You're members of the kingdom of God. Visible. And therefore, we must bring them to Jesus Christ. We do it by teaching them. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. Thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, just like the Jewish fathers here, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So, because your children are in the kingdom of God, because they're God's blessing to you, Psalm 127, you must bring them up in the faith. You must disciple them and you must train them. And so, I know the parents do take this very seriously. So this is just an an affirmation, a confirmation of what you're doing is biblical. And there's a great encouragement as they're not. Jesus says, Have the children come to me. So when you're praying, God, save my child, is Jesus willing? We'll just read the text. Suffer the little children to come unto me and hinder them not, for such is the kingdom of God. What faith will that rise in you? Third implication. I have to be very brief here because we're very much going out of time. Third implication is for the child. Children, is your parent a covenant parent? Children, are your parents professing believers? That means you're a member of the kingdom of God. You have every opportunity, every warrant to be saved. Because your parents are teaching you in the things of God Your parents are bringing you to public worship. Your parents are teaching you the Bible and you have every opportunity. Others outside the kingdom of God don't. But you do. But remember, it's not enough to be a member of the visible kingdom of God. Ye must be born again and enter the invisible kingdom of God. In Romans chapter 2, children... It says a true Jew is not one outwardly, circumcision, oracles, Bible, and worship. A true Jew is someone who has a new heart and loves God. Not all that are Israel are actually Israel. There's an external, visible Israel where God generally elects them and gives them all the the, the temple, the promises. But it's only the true Israel who are born again of the Spirit or they're circumcised of the heart. And so, children, you are to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ. When? No. Not later. Not when you're 10 or 15 or 20 or 70. No. You are to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ now. But you might be afraid. You might have a wrong view of Jesus Christ or a half view of Jesus Christ. Maybe you see him as God. Holy, majestic, great, and you're afraid. Because maybe you have the idea of a a very unfeeling, austere, serious adult, and they don't very much like you in their presence. That's not Jesus. He has all the attributes I just mentioned, but he is also meek and lowly in heart. Jesus Christ is the shepherd of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs, the baby sheep, with his arms. Are you a lamb? Are you a young child? Jesus Christ is loving, willing, compassionate, and ready to pick you up as his lamb. He says, let no one hinder you from coming to me. You, as a child, here and now, look at the love, the grace, the mercy, and the words of Jesus Christ. Come unto me. Dear child, whether you're 2 years old or 12 years old, or maybe you're still a child when you're 38 years old. I don't know everyone here. Christ says, come. Turn away from your own sin. Turn away from your own self-righteousness and turn to me in faith and I will lift you up like a lamb and I will save you. I will justify you. I will adopt you. I will sanctify you and I will be with you the rest of your life and for eternity. So dear little lambs, come to Jesus Christ by faith. He will receive you. Now, was far gone, and our third heading was actually how does this passage apply to the disciples? Because in verse 15, he actually says to the disciples, now you need to be like them. But we don't have time, so we'll discuss it in Sabbath school. Let's pray.